Now, adults, the same question is for you. Have you met someone that changed your life? I wasn't here last week, um, but I know Jonathan talked about Tim Keller, and I want to briefly add my little piece to this um, about how he changed my life. This last week was an emotional one for me as I read uh, so many lovely tributes. Uh, Many of my friends have talked about the impact that Tim has had on us. If you're a pastor in the PCA or really any Reformed pastor, church pastor, Tim has had a major influence on you, and you don't me. Now, I met him twice, uh, one time in a seminary class in New York City where I sheepishly asked him some questions as he sat with us for two hours and talked about gospel in the city. Um, I met him another time at the General Assembly where he and his son Michael sat right in front of me, and then he turned around and apologized because Tim was a tall man. He's 6'4", and he apologized for his big bald head blocking us from the screen. Um, but Tim changed my life dramatically um, in the fall of 2004. I was going on a run, and I had placed his CD in uh, uh, a CD, yeah, whatever that is, a CD, and a Walkman CD. And um, I felt like I heard the gospel for the first time as a Christian from Tim's voice. I heard that, that the love of Jesus was so good and so great that all my failures or fear of failures couldn't undo me, couldn't wreck me, couldn't make an end of me. That that, that good news was still for me, even as a young Christian minister. And that news had a deep impact on the practical ways that I lived from that day on out till this day. I, I met with God that day. And the trajectory of my life was changed. Now, partly in honor of him, this sermon has so much uh, from a sermon that he preached on this same text. Um, now, I went ahead and read the part from the first part from Second Kings, but but Naaman was about as unlucky, uh, unlikely of a character to meet God, meet the God of Israel as anyone. Now, is there somebody you're dying to meet? How likely is it that that meeting might occur? Like on a scale of 1%, 10%, 50%, how likely is it for you to meet this person you want to meet? Naaman was such an outsider that to put the chances of him meeting the God of Israel would have been at like nil. He was rich, he was powerful, he's a general of a foreign army that has oppressed Israel. God is a God that time and time again has expressed what? His love for his people. He he uses language when he describes Israel like like a parent talks about their child. Or like a husband talks about his bride. He he says like a, a parent or a spouse that he loves them so much that he's jealous for their love. Like he protects it and protects them. Promising punishment on outsiders like Naaman who rob and destroy his people. And yet, Naaman finds himself in Israel visiting the prophet of God. And in this moment, this encounter, his life has changed. Now, now Naaman, going into this, thinks his problem is what? Well, he thinks his problem is his leprosy. right? Leprosy is a skin disorder of some type. Severe enough for Naaman 
that even though he's a valorous military hero, even though he's very rich, so rich that he can offer 10 lifetimes of money to whoever might help him, that his leprosy is so severe that he is ashamed in his appearance, and that, that shame is negating all his power and all his wealth. So he comes to Israel to do something about it. There's a problem out there, and I'm going to fix it. I, I'm going to will myself to fix it. Now, for me, on that day when I listened to that Tim Keller sermon from Colossians chapter 3, my problem was attendance. I was a campus minister who had seen his campus ministry dwindle, bleed out students. And I was trying to find every solution. We, we were meeting first in this huge sanctuary, and we had like 50 to 75 students. So I thought, well, I'll fix this. I'm going to move to a smaller room. And so we had met for like three or four weeks that semester, and it didn't help at all. And so then I was like, I'm going to change the way that I'm kind of leading and speaking. Didn't help. You see, Naaman's out there at the prophet's house, not getting FaceTime with the prophet, with his ten changes of clothes and all his horses and chariots and chests full of gold. Surely this will help. Now, have you thought, I can fix this? And then you couldn't. Like the problem you think is out there, it's attackable. I, I just need to get to work on it. I, I just need to flash something, you know, my personality, my pearly whites, use the force of my will or personality, and this thing will be fixed. Problems out there. I have what, it's ta- what it takes to face those problems. But what if, like Tim says, your biggest problems aren't out there, but they're in here? Like that Tuesday afternoon when I went for the run... I not only was trying to fix my ministry, I was trying to fix my body, my health, which I was also feeling like quite a failure about. My heart was entangled in things related to having three tiny little babies at home. I was overwhelmed with my sin. I was struggling as a man and a husband, a dad. And then I think about the weight added to all that weight, seeing my ministry not flourish. That's a problem out there. But the biggest problem was I was a failure. I was failing my body. I was failing in some ways my family. I was failing my ministry. At least that's what I felt. And my future seemed precarious. Now, what do you do when faced with those sorts of problems? Simon Zoll uh, tells this story He's a theologian. I can relate to it because I've done the exact same thing. He says the following. A few years ago, we finally bought our first house. I found myself having to learn skills needed for taking care of a house on my own. I had a wonderful, educative upbringing, but my DIY skills were not a major part of that. Now, our house is perfectly nice, he says, but it does have this quite ugly, quite visible garage area at the front. So on the advice of my gardener, gardener designer mom, I decided to try to cover up this eyesore by growing jasmine up the brick 
along the sides of the, of the garage. To do so, he says, I learned I needed to install vertical cables so that the jasmine could grow. So to install the cables and keep them in place, you need to drill holes in the brick for the eyelet screws that the cable can attach to. At this point, I did at least own a drill, a pretty good handheld battery-operated drill that had served me well inside the house. So once the cables and screws arrived, I dutifully went outside and drilled the holes I needed. I thought I'd done everything right, he says. I'd measured very carefully. I'd made sure the drill bit was the right size. I'd verified that the battery was charged. Feeling very handy, I began to drill the hole. I get the bit spinning as it should. It starts pressing into the brick. It starts making that loud drilling sound. But after a minute or two, I don't seem to be making any progress. So I start pushing harder. The drilling noise gets louder. I start to sweat. And eventually, I've run down half the battery. And I look at the hole. All that noise, all that furious spinning... And I discovered it had produced nothing more than a tiny divot less than a quarter of an inch deep. Does this not sound like us, City Press? This is Naaman. This is me. Lacing up my shoes right before I pop in the Keller sermon into my CD player. So all continues. At this point, it occurs to me that I might be doing something wrong. So I go back into the house, pull up the great DIY Bible YouTube, and quickly discover the problem. It turns out, and perhaps readers will already know about this, Scott will for sure, you can't drill holes in brick without special tools. Specifically, you need a hammer drill, which is a lot more powerful than a battery-held one and adds percussive force to the drilling. And you also need a mortar drill bit, which is an extra hard drill bit designed specifically for tough surfaces like brick. Special tools. What are those tools? What are the tools by which you tackle failure, sickness, rejection, parenting woes, Marriage problems, performance issues at work, just like Naaman. Or like Simon, starting with his wall and with his drill. We say to God, have you no standards? I mean, look at me. I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm here. After a long distance, I have all the money in the world. I can earn this. I can fix this. Naaman thought his problems were his leprosy, his disease, the public perception of that disease, but his problems were much greater than that. Naaman's deepest need was a revolution in his understanding of who this God is, this God of Israel, whom he's been sent to. We see this in verses 11 through 13. Naaman growing impatience. Uh, impatient. That impatience leads him to anger. When not only... Does this prophet not meet him face to face, but sends him to take a dip in the dirty Jordan? He's appalled at such an ask. And it's like only when his advisors remind him of what the need is and the simplicity of the ask that his heart is moved. And it's only moved a little. But in this ask, Naaman comes face to face with this God. That the God of Israel shows Naaman that he he can't tackle his problems 
with his own stuff. He can only tackle the problems that he is facing with an immense and desperate need. Naaman thinks he has something to offer, but in fact, he has nothing to offer. And this is the problem for us as well. We come to our God and we think we have something, and so we keep looking for change with all our somethings. We keep hoping for change with all those somethings. We keep thinking that we can fix ourselves. And after wearing that bit down to the nub, then and only then do we come face to face with what? Our inability. Need is like this. Need is the proper bit. This is how Zal concludes it. After dutifully procuring these tools, I return to the wall, bring the hammer drill with the mortar bit to that same little divot, and just like that, the drill does its job in about a half a second. It's like the wall is made of butter. Your need prepares you for what? What do all those needs, all those failures, all those losses, all those struggles, what do they do? They prepare you to receive what? The good news. You see, all my failure at that time in my life made me ready to hear the good news. For me, on that run through the words of Keller, was really from St. Paul, your life, Justin, is hidden with Christ in God. I'd preached the text, but on this day, I finally heard it. And it was like a bit applied to my heart, and my heart melted. And so did Naaman. Well, how do we know? Well, there's three marks, right, that come to Naaman. Right? First, he has a change in thinking. Verse 15, he returns after being washed, being cleansed. He returns to the, with all his company to Elisha. Behold, he says, what? I now know that there is no God in all the earth but the God that's in Israel. You see, his need, his leprosy, led him to receive the, the good news of being dipped in the dirty Jordan to be made whole. And now his thinking about the world has changed. Now remember, in the ancient Near East, the thought was that your God represented your clan, your tribe, your people, and that God would bring you success or victory. And if it was a failure, if you were a failure, then your God was a failure. So your God needed to be appeased with something from you, an offering, a work. Naaman, in this moment, says, all those gods, all those other gods, and all that they're offering are what? Nothing. I don't want you to miss the, the cataclysmic nature of such a change. He says, there's, there's no God. No God in all the earth but Yahweh. Now, he doesn't even say that, at least first. He says it a little later. But this is how much his thinking has changed. Now, perhaps you're here, and the gods of this age are the name by which you enter into the world. Right? Like, what are some of those things? You're at a party. You meet somebody new and you introduce yourself, what do you say? 
where you went to college, where you live, where you're from, what you do, who you're with. Those are our gods. When we experience failure, for instance, in one of these areas, what do we do? Well, we lean into another area where we aren't failing. We find identity in this place, in this season, until something in this other area that matters more to us changes. Like, right, if you're at a party and your marriage is failing, then you lean into the other places of excess and you announce your identity to this new world. Naaman announces, I know I came here with my gods, but those gods are no more. I can't describe like the euphoria I felt that day after my run. When I go back to it in my mind, I, I, I almost feel physically dizzy. Like that day, I was so undone by the good news that I remember I walked into my Tuesday night meeting, preached, preached the story about David that used to be about David that now was somehow about Jesus who comes from the seed of David. And the whole moment was charged. It, it felt like the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. It sounded like the buzz of electricity. It, it looked like things had color. And I kept thinking, I, how have I not known this before? Like seriously, if I, did, if I didn't know this, like, like what else don't I know? But the one thing I knew that night is that this God was a God who cared about my failings so much that he sent his son Jesus to meet me in this place of deep need and not give me success. Nothing like changed overnight. But to give me failure so that through my failure I would, I would find him. And that news in that moment was electric. This is Naaman. He, he's alive with this new knowing, knowing that, that, his, knowing that make, remakes his mind, re-enlivens his heart. And this is the next thing. How do we know Naaman met God? He has a new attitude about his possessions. Naaman came to Israel with more wealth than all of Israel. And in his exuberance of receiving this gift, he wants to give. He says to Elijah, please, please accept this gift. Instead of giving out of a place to win favor, to earn favor, he gives out of, of a place of having been given success, given healing. And so he wants to give. And Elijah receives none of it. He urges him. Naaman, Naaman's heart's been changed. Even out of that place he wants to give. And Elijah says, no, I'm not going to take your money, Naaman. Go home. You've been changed. And that leads to the last point. How do we know Naaman's changed? God becomes central to him. When his offering is rejected, he asks Elijah for two things. And they're kind of weird. Right? He says, give me a bunch of dirt. Put it in two mules that I can take it back with me. Why? So when he offers sacrifice and worship to God, this God, the only God, the one true God, he wants to do it on the soil of the land of the God of Israel. 
And second, he asks for advice. He says to Elijah, when I go to the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, bowing myself there, will you pardon your servant? And Elijah says to him, what? Yeah, go in peace. Naaman's like, what do I do? Our, our local god is Rimon. It's part of the tradition to offer worship there, sacrifices. What do I do when I go there? Now, Naaman understands that the temple of Rimon is not like this morally indifferent thing. He asks for Elisha to pardon him, not, not just permission. When I go there, Elijah, I understand that, that this temple is a temple of a God who is not God. But I still must go there. But I, when I do, I, I know, I am not, know that I'm not thinking of Rimon, I'm thinking of God. I might be there when I'm there, but I'm really with the God of Israel. That's all of this is curious, right? It's curious that Elisha just says, go in peace. He, he seems to be indifferent to this. right? He, he's gentle in his understanding of the difficulty of this new follower of Yahweh who finds himself in such a tricky spiritual and political place. There's no withdrawal for Naaman to escape such dilemmas and difficulties. Right? Maybe, maybe we need to be more gentle with ourselves and others in our dilemmas as well. God is central for Naaman. This has changed. Like for me and my journey, like it led me to leave this great job that I loved in Lubbock to go on to seminary so that I could fulfill God's call in my life. Meeting God does this. It causes us to move in different ways. For, for Naaman, it was moving in a different way in this space, a, a space on foreign land, a, a space with foreign gods, a, a subversive way that is very much still implanted and present, not withdrawn. Now quickly, to make Naaman's transformation clear, the last part of the chapter gives us a contra-example, right? The text is screaming at you and us for comparison. Here's Naaman, an outsider, a foreigner, a Gentile. He meets God. He's changed in thought, heart, action, generosity. God becomes central to Naaman's life. And then there's Gehazi, Elijah's priest. He's an insider, an Israelite one with prominence and position. And the text says to you and I, he had all this and he missed God. He had the appearance of godliness, but denies its power and turns away from him. Gehazi says, my master Elijah has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, the outsider, the enemy of Israel. He's not even accepted riches from his hand. I mean, think what we could do with this money, Elijah. My master was way too easy on Naaman. He thinks he has license because he's a Syrian and a foreigner and an outsider to exploit him. And I want you to think about that just for a moment in our cultural moment. There's been many offers at that to the church in this day. Gehazi goes after Naaman. It's all well, all is well. The scheme is hatched. 
My master sent me to ask for two lifetimes. Remember, that's what he's asking for. Two talents. It's two lifetimes of money. Two changes of clothing. I love that. For the sons of the prophets, he says. And then he takes the money to his own house. What's on the inside of Gehazi comes out. And the result is Gehazi becomes like Naaman, and Naaman becomes like Gehazi. Where have you been, Gehazi? I was nowhere. I was here. Did you not go out to meet Naaman and accept all that money? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, a leper. What's on the inside of Gehazi comes out on on the outside, and then he's marked on the outside by what was on the inside. That's a scary thing, I think, in this text. Because all of us knows what's on our inside. What do we do? Like Gehazi is given the opportunity to repent. When Elisha asks him the question, that's the moment. I was here the whole time, Elisha. What do we do with our inside problem? Well, I want you to consider the third character in the story as we close. And she appears much earlier. She's a little girl from Israel. We talked about this several weeks ago, but the little girl was probably taken captive. She probably lost her parents. She's an orphan. She would have been at the bottom of every social ladder in Israel, and how much more so in Syria. She's a woman. She's young. She's a slave. She's an orphan. And who's responsible for this? Well, Naaman is. He's the general who conquered her people in a war, took her from her home, put her in service to his wife and family. She doesn't respond to the travesty and trauma with justice, but says, like, my master has leprosy, kind of deserves it. No, no, that's what Gehazi does. He justifies himself and his actions. Instead, this girl says, I know how my master can be saved. If only he could see the prophet of God. If only. Where there should be hatred, there's compassion and love. And this love is costly. It is costly to this girl to love Naaman in this way. But for some reason, she forgives him. This little girl is the Christ figure in this narrative. Naaman has a suffering servant. And you do too. The good news for you and I, with all that stuff that's on the inside, that often comes out on the outside, for Naaman's and Gehazi alike, is that Jesus, the Christ, bears our punishment, forgives our sins. He's plunged into the torments of all our sin and all our judgment, suffers and dies in our place. So what? So we can meet with God. So we can meet with God and be changed. And my question for you this morning is, have you met this God? Has your heart been changed? Has your mind been renewed? Have you been brought to this place where you see that the drill bit that you're working with is getting you nowhere but tired and fatigued and worn out? 
worn down to the nub in anxiety and failure and fear. Know that that's the place for you and I to receive the good news. You see, the exchange between Naaman and Gehazi points to what? The blessed exchange of the cross where the one who who knows no sin is made sin for us, where Jesus the Jew takes on the leprosy of the world, excluded from the presence of God so that we might be brought to God and meet him. And on this Pentecost Sunday, this is our salvation too. Most of us in this room are Gentiles, grafted into the vine of Jesus because what happened thousands of years ago at Pentecost, where every nation on the earth, known, heard the good news of this Savior, Jesus, and were made alive to him by faith. This spirit, then by the word, becomes that bit, that bit that melts our hearts like butter. How might we go to the nations, to our friends, our neighbors, with all that stuff that's on the inside, with all those fears and anxieties and needs undone, in the hands of our Savior, calling them to be brought near and washed clean. That's how we go. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of the cross, the exchange where you take our sin and you give us life. Where you dwell with us, you, 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 thru, you thrust us into the story that ends with the words, once again, God's dwelling place is with man. And each Sunday, we're a little hovel of that future reality, where you meet with us here in this place at a table, in the word, through one another. God, you're this God who takes what's inside all of us and shows us that our true problem lies there and we can only be saved by the life of Jesus, the life of God himself. And you invite us to believe it. You unite us to yourself in our believing. You make us your own. So I pray today that you would Spur us on with the good news that the drill bit of our life is our need and you're the drill that melts our hearts and renews us and makes us your own. Help us to walk in that today by the Spirit through the Word at the table. Help us, God, we pray. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.